They don't care about your 900 years of combined experience or your wall of books. They only want to know one thing. Once they've signed on the dotted line, are you going to take care of them? Welcome to the Judge Shaw way, where we believe providing an exceptional client experience is just as important as quality legal representation. From secret tips for creating unforgettable wow moments to proven customer service pointers, the Judge Shaw way is everything you need to go from being a good lawyer to owning a great brand. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Judge Shaw. Today on the show, I have Deborah Gilboa. Most people know her by Dr. G, and so that's what I'm going to call her as well. Dr. G is a resilient expert, and doctor, let me get right to it. I was stressed out this morning getting ready for this podcast, but then the more I research about you, the more I learn that's not such a bad thing, is it? It is not such a bad thing. And, you know, Judd, leaders who are listening might recognize that this thing has happened in the last 10, 15 years where we vilify people who say things that cause us stress, Mm -hmm. right? This idea that if somebody's causing you stress, they're the villain and they're toxic and you should get away from them. And this puts leaders in a really bad spot because you cannot lead without using stress as one of your tools. By way of background, you are a, an MD, family practice, right? Uniquely, you have an incredible theater and arts background as well, coming right out of the famous Second City. You have an awesome TED Talk, doing too much is good for you. How did you get into the world of stress? I haven't met anybody who isn't in it, have you? Well, (laughs) I haven't researched it the way you have, but I will tell you, the only thing that I, you know, from my background that I joined you in was while you did the anatomy of a feral pig, I remember when I was in high school and we had the frogs and that was when I knew that uh, MD doctor was not in my future. So that's totally what I thought too. I, when I was a little kid, people would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which is, by the way, a useless question. Please don't ask people that. But in the meantime, I would say, I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon mm. because I liked the reaction that I got. But it stuck. I was like, yeah, I could do that. Sounds cool. And then I got to freshman year biology and we had to dissect something and I was totally grossed out. And I was like, well, that's off the right. Like in 30 seconds. I was like, oh, I feel sick. I'm not doing that. Totally changed my whole path. What I didn't know, actually, is that when you're in puberty, you're much more affected by smells and you're much more easily grossed out than you are as an adult. But in any case, the real meat of the question is, as a doctor, uh, and I went to medical school in my late 20s. So, you know, I brought my walker and my Depends along with me. I was definitely much older than most of my classmates. But what I heard from my professors was, stress is the new smoking Tell your patients to avoid it at all costs. Now, that's what we heard during class. At the end of class, they made announcements. And the announcements said, be sure to join three extracurricular groups, get involved in a research project, run every day. We're having a fundraising marathon at the end of the semester. And they just piled on and piled on. And I thought, if stress is the new smoking, they are clearly trying to kill us. Mm. And then I watched when I was in my clinical time as a third year and a fourth year, medical student, I watched nurses and physicians and patients and everybody, families navigate tremendous amounts of stress. And it was not the indicator of how they were doing. 
I read a study somewhere in my fourth year of medical school explaining that they gave doctors charts of patients that they would never meet, describing all of their medical issues, and then asked the doctors to rate the quality of life of each of the patients. And they were profoundly wrong in almost every instance. We are not the sum of our stresses. There's something else. Fast forward, I went through residency, which is 110-hour work weeks, so I really wasn't thinking anything beyond survival of me and my patients at that point. And I finished my training. I'd been attending for a few years, which means just, you know, a doctor out in the community practicing. And what I discovered was that this difference, meaning how people handle their lives as opposed to what their lives have handed them, was crucial, really incredibly prognostic for not just my patient's survival, Mm. but their happiness. I discovered that there was a gap between helping people recover from illness and injury, which I had been trained to do, and helping them be well. When I looked at the medical literature, it called that gap patient resilience. Right. I I heard about that. And that was with mostly with veterans or emotional wellness. Well, when I went to look and see what is resilience, like, okay, if that's true, how do I give them that? How do I write a prescription for patient resilience? And all the research at the time was, as you're saying, done mostly on folks with PTSD, combat veterans and like that, or folks with severe mental illness, which is really interesting and useful, but wasn't applicable to most of my patients. And so I was trying to figure out what is this thing that we call resilience? What's it made of? First of all, is it just something you're born with? Like, is it like your genetics? And then all I can do is notice it in my patients and be like, oh, good news or too bad for you. Or is there something that we do that affects it? And that's what caused me to dive headlong into research on the intersection of stress and mental health and resilience. I understand that you can be born with a higher stress tolerance than other people. You can be more naturally resilient. Part of how you're raised either creates an ability to live within stress. Some people, you know, fight or flight is a comfortable place. But how do we start talking to people that they stop looking at, oh my, you're stressing me out. It's giving me stress. I'm stressed. That's going to cause stress. And start to look at that as not a negative, right? That's not, it's not a bad word. The first thing we have to do, and I know you've spoken about this on your podcast a lot. The first thing we have to do when someone tells us that they're stressed is have empathy. It's just believe them, right? We have to start with empathy because if we don't, if then what we're saying is, oh no, those feelings are stupid, have different ones. And that works on no one ever. (laughs) So the first thing we do when someone tells us that they're stressed is we believe them. And When they say they are stressed, what they're saying is they're feeling pressed, they're feeling pressure. And that's an uncomfortable feeling. But what you're talking about so wisely, Judd, is how do we get people to interrogate their stress and figure out two things? Is it avoidable or unavoidable? Mm. Is it useful or useless? If it's avoidable and useless, I'm the first one to say, walk away from that bad boy. Right. You don't, not your circus, not your monkeys. But if it is unavoidable, and examples of unavoidable stress are everything from a parking ticket to a cancer diagnosis to a merger and acquisition. Examples of useful stress is any stress that is helping you get towards a change you want because all change is stressful. And that's where medical training in the late 1990s really fell apart on this issue. You can't avoid 
stress because our brains interpret all change, even the stuff we want, even the good stuff, as stressful. Isn't that incredible? I can have team members who I sit down and I remember this conversation I had a young girl who really was wanting professional growth. She wanted to develop in the company. She wanted to grow in the company. She has a role. And then somebody leaves a role that I perceive as moving up. We offer the position. And it was like we told her she was getting fired. It was overwhelming. There were actual tears. She had an emotional, negative emotional response to it. When we prodded and poked a little bit because we're, you know, what do we do? Did we miss something? I mean, she's getting more money. Mm -hmm. She's going to get more opportunity. She just had settled into this role and it was this change that my role will change, but did not look at it as if my role is changing, which means I'm professionally growing. Because we make an assumption that discomfort is dangerous. And occasionally discomfort is dangerous. If you are leaning out over a beautiful overlook and you're uncomfortable because the guardrail is starting to give, that's dangerous. But most of the time, discomfort is just super uncomfortable. It's not actually dangerous. One of the places that leaders encounter a great deal of change resistance is when They're working with people who haven't yet learned the skill, and it's simply a skill. It's not a referendum on their character of interrogating their stress to figure out, is it useful? Right. We have a myth in our society that you should go with your gut. Just always trust your gut. And first of all, it's not your gut. Your stomach digests food. It's your brain. And second of all, this is a reflex. So Judd, um, have you ever taken a kid to the doctor for a well child check? I have. Okay, so if you brought your child to see me, because I'm a family doctor and this is one of the things I do, I'd sit them up on the table, or you would, the three of us would talk, I'd listen with my stethoscope, I'd let them listen with my stethoscope, and then at some point, I'd take my reflex hammer and I would tap their knee. Now, if I did that, standing right directly in front of your child and tap their knee, what would happen to me? They'd kick it. Right, they'd kick me, right? I'd get kicked. But you wouldn't chastise your kid for kicking me, it's a reflex. As a matter of fact, you'd think to yourself, well, she's dumber than she looks. Why did she stand right in front of my kid? And yet, so true. leaders stand right in front of people, announce change, and then we get really upset when we get kicked. There are three reflexes that our brains have simply to protect us, just to keep us alive, even with good change. And those reflexes are loss, distrust, and discomfort. So do what I do when I do a well child check. Stand to the side. Mm. Let the reflex happen. Expect that it will. You can even say to yourself, yep, healthy brain. And then you can help them navigate it. You can learn the skills as a leader that will help your staff, your team, learn the skills they need to navigate change more smoothly. But you cannot stop those reflexes any more than you could tell your child, the doctor's going to tap your knee, but don't kick. Right. It's a deep tendon reflex. Right. We call it in our in our expressions in English, we call it a knee-jerk reaction. You can't help it. And beyond with patients, you do speaking, you work with teams, you work with corporations, companies in helping teams increase their stress tolerance or the way they look at stress. How is some of the ways you do that? 
Some of it is a little bit of context setting. There are some things that are really valuable for leaders to know because what I just talked about, about standing in front of our teams and getting kicked, here's what happens. And I want you to tell me if you disagree, but when leaders announce a change, and by the way, we don't really need leaders when there is no change, right? If everything's going to stay exactly the same, leaders can go to Belize on vacation Mm -hmm. for a week. But when leaders explore a change or announce a change and they get caught in the splash zone of people's loss or distrust or discomfort, like you got caught in the splash zone with that associate that you wanted to promote, they think either, don't you trust me? Haven't I proven that I have our mission in mind, that I have your best interests in mind, that I'm good at my job? Or Mm -hmm. what is wrong with you? Are you obstinate? Are you close-minded? Are you lazy? We see this reflex as a referendum, either on our own leadership or on the character of the people that we've hired. Right. And it's neither one. So it is first useful to have that reframe. That's not the bulk of the work that I do with corporations, but it is a reframe I'd like our listeners to really think about because if you announce a change or explore a change and there's a splash of lost distrust and discomfort, nobody's doing anything wrong. Right. Not you and not your team. Right. What happens next is really useful. So understanding what is resilience, which By the way, resilience is the ability to navigate change with intention and purpose, not just adversity, not just struggle, not just setbacks, but all change, like the possible promotion. So learning the skills that make up resilience doesn't just help people recover from a difficult change. It helps them to be strengthened for all the upcoming change. So I help people change their communication around stress the language that they use, the way that they measure it, the metrics that they consider about it, and to vet it differently, to interrogate it differently, like we mentioned, unavoidable or avoidable, useful or useless, and then what to do with that information. But the most valuable thing I do is I help people understand the evidence-based strategies that get other people through change more smoothly. Because almost every business is responsible for helping customers, clients, you know, in your business, judges and juries Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. through change, through stress. I want to challenge stress here and now on the idea that there are these stress markers. And I want to ask your thoughts on it. And I'll I'll be transparent and, and vulnerable. Divorce, COVID, corporate financial stress and real problems, HR issues. I moved. I think like they give you the markers, right? These are the six, five. And don't forget all the good changes you've been through, the growth that you've had in your business, the opportunities you've had. Those are all stressors also. Right. And so, so they say, well, if you move, if you, if you get divorced, if you, you know, have financial problems. Lose okay. someone in your so family. Wh- yeah. why, did, why has all those things happened in my life recently? And yet I can tell you I'm almost at the happiest I've ever been. So we have this, another myth in our society. We like to say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. For most people, what doesn't kill you makes you miserable. And just waiting for hard things to magically make you stronger is a little bit like me saying, well, I'm going to run that marathon, but I'm only going to train for it by forgetting where I parked in the parking lot and wandering around looking for my car. That'll probably be enough, right? (laughs) Great analogy. When you have encountered these difficult things... They happened, but you haven't decided to continue carrying them, oppressing you. This idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, 
Judd, I won't ask you who, but do you know someone in your life who, no matter how many bad things happen to them, it just keeps being awful? It never gets any easier? thousand percent. If it were true that just going through hard things built our resilience, none of us would know adults like that. Right. We'd get that out of the way in childhood. That's true. It'd be like learning to read. Like, okay, I know how to read. And almost everyone, luckily, in our society learns to read. Right. But it's not that simple. So- What we learned in our research is there are some traits that influence how we deal with stress. There are some formative experiences that influence how we deal with stress, but I'm not interested in those because we can't affect those now. Those are all set. What's really useful to know is that there are eight skills that each improve how we navigate change and how we handle stress. And every person listening has some, has a little bit to a lot of each of those eight skills. But just like I'm lucky enough in some of my work to work with Olympic athletes, and uh, no matter how amazing they are at their skills, they all seem to feel like if they work a little harder, they can get even better. Mm. And like with any skill, you can keep polishing it. Right. So even if one of those eight skills, just for example, Chad, one of those eight skills is building connections. And I would bet that in a secret envelope, anonymous survey, you'd rate yourself pretty highly in your ability to build connections. Yeah? Yes, for sure. But you'd probably also recognize that you might be able to get even better at it, right? You could go from amazing to rock star. That's true. And of those eight skills, you might look at one of those and say, I'm not great at that. And I'll take one that a lot of entrepreneurs name themselves as not being great at. I don't know you well enough to know if it's true for you. And that's setting boundaries. The worst. A lot of entrepreneurs say they're bad at setting boundaries. And- we kind of like to credit that with some of our success, right? If we'd set boundaries, we might not have said yes to as many things. But setting boundaries isn't actually about saying no. Setting boundaries, and I'm going to tell you this and you're going to be like, oh, I'm better at that than I thought. Setting boundaries is about aligning your choices to your actual priorities. That's what setting boundaries means. And I bet you recognize that there are times where you would have an easier time of navigating change later if you polished up that skill of setting boundaries now. That's true. These eight skills, independently, in no particular order, and different ones are useful in different changes, Mm -hmm. help us navigate that change with intention and purpose. Basically, they help us get the life we want. Someone told me about these cold dunks, right? And so for the last six months, every night, I fill this glass bowl. I don't do the shower one. That's too torturous. Uh But I do this big bowl, and I put the water in the fridge overnight and in the morning I fill it with ice and after usually shave including this morning I dunk my face in this ice cold water for 30 seconds I come up my heart is really beating I'm taking a deep breath I'm wiping the water through my hair what is that doing so have you ever seen on a tv show when somebody's heart stops and they say clear and they defibrillate their heart yes of course you're basically doing that to your vagal nerve You're basically clearing your brain entirely. You're briefly convincing your brain that you're about to die, and it re-centers all of its efforts. It really shifts and reprioritizes and shuffles things incredibly quickly. And what's strange about this is no matter how many times you do that, it's a little bit like, and this is going to date me, taking the Etch-A-Sketch and turning it upside down and shaking it so it clears the screen. And you just start it again. You're not getting used to it, in other words. Right. Wow. 
That's amazing. It sounds like from even researching, coming into this podcast and, and learning about the things you're studying and you're doing, there is ways for stress tolerance or reducing stress, certain stress. And then there's other ways of increasing the, the tolerance to it or the ability to, to see it. There are two parts to it, right? I actually would go out on a limb and say there are three. Yeah. First, there's the ability to recognize, okay, I'll change is stressful, right? So I'm going to have empathy for myself. Mm -hmm. This is hard, even if it's just a parking ticket, right? It's a change. I wasn't expecting it. It feels like a stressor. And I'll have empathy for myself. It's not that I'm not a strong person. It's not that I'm not a resilient person. It's just like, yeah, okay, that's upsetting. That's the first piece. The second piece is the interrogation of it. Is this avoidable or unavoidable, useless or useful? If it's avoidable and useless, am I willing to walk away? Right. If it's unavoidable or useful or both, then how do I navigate it? One of the eight resilient skills is the ability to manage discomfort. You know, I talked to you about those three reflexes, loss, distrust, and discomfort. When I first got into learning about this and researching this, my team and I, we argued about where would people get stuck? This is a cycle. You hear about a change, like you learn about it, you decide on it, someone tells you whatever, and your brain says, what could I lose? Do I trust this? Is it true? Is it reliable? Will it really happen? Do I have to? And then what's going to be uncomfortable about it? The next step is remembering, and all that happens in the amygdala, in the center of the brain. The next step is really simple. It's remembering that you have choices, strategies, options. Don't even have to know what they are. You don't have to list your choices. If you simply say to yourself, I have choices in how I handle this and what I do and what I think and what I say, just that turns on your ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which quiets. It doesn't turn off your safety mechanisms. You will still feel lost distrust and discomfort, but it turns them from a 10 down to a seven or a five or a three. But in there, if you can remember how to get to choice, even while you're still feeling some of those other things, you will be successful in navigating that change. We argued about where do you think people get stuck? And I thought, having recently at the time lost my mom, I thought, I think people are going to get stuck in loss most often. Grief is so unpredictable. It comes in these crazy waves. It hits you when you least expect it. It just swamps you sometimes. And this is my observation of people as well as my own experience. So I thought it's got to be lost. And, you know, I have to say during the pandemic, I got an email from someone on my team who said, I'm watching what's happening in this country. And I just think we, we got to look into this more. I think people get stuck in distrust. Distrust is crippling. And so we did the research, and here's what we found. It's discomfort. That's where people get stuck the most, wow. in discomfort. Loss can come back and grab them and pull them backwards a little bit sometimes. But, and distrust is a real obstacle. But most people get stuck in discomfort because they use negative coping mechanisms to handle that discomfort. They use substances. They use conflict. They use violence. They use isolation. They use mind-numbing, not just a season of a show on Netflix, but a series of a show on Netflix to totally withdraw. And it's those negative coping mechanisms that really get in the way of your team, your individual team members' ability to get to the next step. So interesting. So most of our research about strategies have centered around how do we honor where people are and move them towards choice, engagement, and reunification, which are the three steps of that cycle on the way back up. And I find that uh, so interesting because as you're saying that, and I, the experience with my team, I find that the team members 
that are early on, you know, your first 90 days or definitely within their first year are more susceptible to change. They are, I think they're still in a setting of uneasiness. They're still trying to learn a role. And if you move them around a little, it's not as. You take someone, at least my experience in my company, who has a couple years and then you ask them to like start to, that's where that, the stress of those team members, to me, really interestingly, higher than somebody who is still just learning, you know, Jimmy's name next door in the cubicle. And that person has the ability to move around easier than somebody who's been in the company. And perhaps, you know, sometimes, and listen, for sure, I made a lot of mistakes. I make more mistakes than I get it right at the company. But I think that sometimes now hearing you, some of those team members are like, yeah, I've heard this. I've seen this. This is not going to, they're the, they're the naysayers, but that it's the stress and the change that drives the naysay. It absolutely is. And some of it has to do with how tied their identity is to the role mm. or the fact you're asking them to change about them. So if I've just started with you, then my identity isn't, it might be starting to be tied to working with you, but it's not strongly tied to where I sit at the conference table and how often right. I get called in on a weekend and when my ideas are listened to or not. Right. There lies the discomfort. Yeah. 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 And the loss. Right. That's a good Imposter point. Imposter syndrome plays a role in this. Yeah. Where I usually intersect with a company for the second time. Uh, the first time is when one of the leaders who's a real lateral thinker hears me speak at a conference or on a podcast and they say, oh, we've been struggling with some change or we have a big expensive change coming up and we want to be able to navigate it more smoothly. So we'll work with her. So that's the first time. But the second time when I get to interact with the team, usually we do something that I call a change resistance exam. And it's very much like going to the doctor in that context where you say, hey, here's the change that we want to be able to navigate more easily. And I ask a lot of questions to try and figure out what's already going well, because let's not fix things that are already going well, and where the friction points are. Where does it hurt? Like if you go to the doctor because your elbow's been bothering you, they don't tell you, oh, it's this. They say, well, what makes it worse and what makes it better? And when do you notice it? And when isn't it around? And what have you tried already that didn't work? And have you ever experienced this before? And what did work, right? Lots of questions in that history and physical, as I think of it. One of the things that I have found is that leaders know exactly how the changes that they're implementing tie to their mission. And they have so much empathy for the struggle they're putting their people through by announcing another change, because that's their job. That's what leaders do, mm. that they hesitate to show real genuine empathy for what people are going through because they think, isn't that disingenuous? I'm the one who brought this up in the first place. And they're not. It's not disingenuous at all, but they think it is. And they don't mention how it's tied to mission because of how they're worried that will be perceived. But actually, the things that drive internal motivation in prof adult professionals, one of those is purpose and understanding. And I would recommend, and this is something I do with every client that I work with, look at what you are asking at reviews, quarterly, yearly, whatever they are, reviews of your employees. Make sure you have an understanding of their purpose and help them see how their personal purpose is aligned to the mission of your company, because that will help them be more resilient to navigate change with intention and purpose. Oh, that energy between that passion and purpose is really powerful. 
Doctor, you are doing incredible stuff. I firmly believe leading a company that emotional intelligence and uh, resilience and stress tolerance are the most important subjects we could be teaching in the workplace. It's just th- this, this is the time, this is the age to do it. The employee pool has changed. Times have changed. And these are really important subjects. How do the listeners get in touch with you, doctor, if they won't you know, be able to work with you? Oh, thank you. The easiest way is my website, which is askdrg.com. Great videos there too. I, I've seen them. And doctor, I love what you're doing. I can't thank you enough for coming on. What a great topic. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Are you ready to take the next step to creating an unforgettable brand? Subscribe to The Judge Shaw Way in your favorite podcast app and join the conversation on social media at Judge Shaw Injury Law. Have topic suggestions or questions? Email us at podcast at judshawinjurylaw.com and be sure to include an address where we can send you some cool swag. Attorney advertising materials. This podcast is designed for general information purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as legal advice for an individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and viewing does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No aspect of this advertisement has been approved by the Supreme Court. Any results set forth herein are based upon the facts of that particular case and do not represent a promise or guarantee. Those with legal questions should seek the advice of an attorney.